Hey, Rob. How are you, Derek? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. Welcome back for your third your third time. Yeah. You're already a, a three-time guest. You've break, broken all the records. That's right. I'm going to keep uh-huh. it. You know, I think it was like Steve Martin who had 11 or 13 appearances yeah. somewhere in there on SNL. And I want I want to be the, the Steve Martin of the Art of Product podcast. Yeah, you can put that on your bio somewhere. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm updating my LinkedIn and Twitters as we speak. Yes. Awesome. Great. So I read an interesting article that is sort of related to level and what I'm the approach I'm taking for the business model from the company called Ghost. And the title of the article was After Five Years and Three Million Dollars, Here's Everything We've Learned from Building Ghost. And Got it. And Ghost is like medium yeah, open it's, source? It's like an open source medium alternative. So I think it, it has like a similar aesthetic and it's basically a publishing platform that is I don't know too much about it, but I'm assuming that it's a little bit more restrictive than something like WordPress that's very general purpose. Like I think this is this is designed to be to offer the medium experience for someone who doesn't want to buy into that that platform. Got it. And they make money based on hosting. Hosting. Right. Yep. And so that I find the title a little bit uh, exaggerative. I don't it's three million dollars in total revenue yeah. since inception. Yeah. Um their ARR annual run rate is just about a million, right? Yep. Yep. Eighty two K. Cool. Which is still for a bootstrap business is still awesome, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So some of their vital stats, you know, they have all time revenue, 3 million, 25,000 stars on GitHub because they're an open source project hosted on GitHub. They've had 173 releases, 512,000 sites using Ghost. That's crazy. That's, That's super cool. Yeah. And they've got, you know, users from Apple, Tinder, DuckDuckGo, Mozilla, uh, Square. So a lot of corporate users. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Which is pretty cool. And then <laughs> they have Runway. Just kidding. We've been profitable since year nice. one. So <laughs> that's the cool thing is that they, they're they using the you know open source core product and they're bootstrapped, which is, I find that pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's an unusual, it's really hard to make that work yeah. as we've talked about yeah. because the you tend to need the cash up front to, to get it going. Mm-hmm. Um, or not the, ca- I'm sorry, not the cash up front, but the revenue, you know, yeah. you need to get it from customers right away directly. And I imagine, you know, they didn't launch and get Apple, Tinder, DuckDuckGo the first day right. or the, even the first year, I bet. They probably needed a few years to get the momentum and the brand name. Yeah. So during that time, they must have been selling to, to smaller players. Yeah. I imagine if you're super small and you have developers, you're just going to open source it and throw it on your own AWS servers, mm-hmm. right? Or pull the open source version. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, how did they find that in between before <clears throat> yep. they got the big users? Right. Uh, well, some interesting additional properties of their businesses, they are organized as a nonprofit foundation and their code is all licensed under MIT. So the most permissive open source licensing and with a nonprofit way that they've structured their company, which is just fascinating. You know, they have this kind of broken up into pieces in the article, and I pulled out a few of them that I felt were particularly um, relevant. And so we'll sort of cruise through some of these. So one of them is, they said, competing on convenience with centralized platforms was a mistake. So centralized platforms being like uh, Medium, for example, um, where they talk about, you know, with when you're running a service like Medium and it's you don't have to worry about you know, supporting people downloading the code and throwing it up on their own server, then you can easily do things like implement OAuth and single sign on with Twitter. And you can, you know, outsource your um, search of your database to some service like Algolia or whatever. And they're like, if you try to do that with open source, then your users have to, you know, create a developer application on Twitter and set up their own, you know, account with a search provider. It's very difficult to provide the same smooth experience 
to with, the end users. To the end users who are setting up. Well, and yeah, so you either make it hard and potentially costly for someone to actually set up their own hosted version of your software, or you try to build all of that in-house when, you know, like yeah. you could outsource search very easily and just, you know, roll that into your hosted platform. But if you have to offer search for all your open source users, then you need to set up your own elastic search, I would imagine, and do all this, you know, mm -hmm. all this building of your own right. sort of plumbing. Or you just don't offer those features until, well, you just don't offer them. You yeah. know? I mean, I'm not saying you, you would do it without search, but there, I yeah. bet there are some like OAuth or some where, you, you know, where you just say, not going to do it. Yeah. Because it's just too, it's too complicated to build it right. and we don't want a dependent, external dependency. Yeah. So I think their their takeaway from this was like they said they spent a very long time trying to compete on convenience and simplicity because they were getting feedback that indicated that that was, you know, important mm -hmm. to their users. And they said ultimately they just kind of had to ditch that and assume that they're going to cater it to a more powerful or more professional user who's willing to put in the work to set it up if they really want to host it. And that's... That's a hard thing to do as a product person, right? I mean, yeah. that's one of the, the balances is yep. they were hearing this feedback, make it more flexible, make it more convenient. And yep. yet they had to you know, make a hard decision to basically say, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not discouraged by that because I feel like, you know, part of the value proposition you offer under this model, like people are paying them to host it so that they don't have to go jump through all those hoops to get it set up. And I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, you know, and, and Level's probably going to be in a similar situation where once the product gains a certain amount of maturity, it will be a little bit of a pain to set up probably, mm -hmm. especially if you're, if you're a company and you're trying to offer a reliable, you know, um, platform for engaging in team communication, you're going to want search, you're going to want, you know, redundancy of servers so that if one server goes down, you make sure your whole, you know, team communication system doesn't go down. And these are all the things you have to worry about when you are basically hosting a SaaS application. Mm -hmm. And so the, I'm banking on the fact that this business will be viable because a majority of serious companies won't want to worry about having to mm -hmm. set up all their own hosting. Mm -hmm. And even at, well, I, I would totally agree with that. The killer thing is if you build a product that is different enough yeah. and people really want to use it, then yeah, even when we were four people, yeah. you know, and I don't remember what our you know MRR was at then, I'm guessing say 20 grand or 30 grand a month, I would have absolutely spent 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month to not have to pull a developer off. Right. You know what I'm saying? It just didn't mm -hmm. make any sense. So um, I, you don't have to be that big for it to, to you know, not be worth your time, basically. Now that we were a product firm, if we were an agency, maybe, you know, if we were running yeah. out our time, you always have someone on, um, what do they call it, on the bench, yeah. you know, uh, or at the beach is actually, some of them call it that, but, <laughs> um, even though you're still in the office. But, you know, for those folks, they may want to implement it, but I bet, eh, you know, you'll just have to see. Right? Yeah. You'll just have to see. Yeah. There will be a certain, and like I've talked, I talked to in my um, customer interview process, some, some people who were skeptical about, like they've been on the free plan for Slack and they were skeptical about paying for level. And they're like, I don't know. I just, you know, I feel like maybe I'd kick a few bucks over for this or that. I'm like, okay, that's, if you're the type of customer who's so price sensitive that you don't want to pay for it, then, then go right ahead, you know, and mm -hmm. install it open source. And, right. and you may find that the build versus buy or, or self-host versus buy hosting, you know, equation at some point no longer works out. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. there'll yeah, be a migration see. path for that. Yep. Know? Yep. And the fact that you are targeting developers means you can offer that. Yeah. Because if you were targeting, you know, the whole world, 
or if you were targeting realtors or something, just to pull right. a ridiculous, mm -hmm. you couldn't say, go do the open source version. Yeah. Because I don't know what the heck that is. So. Right, right. Cool. The second point was building a distributed team is both easier and harder than you might imagine. Mm -hmm. and, I like this one. You know, we've we sort of experienced some of that at Drip being partially remote, partially in office. Basically, they said, you know, on the whole, it was a positive experience having a distributed team, but that the biggest challenges came from human problems, not business problems. So answering the questions of like, how do you know someone is in a bad mood? How do you deal with loneliness? How do you foster camaraderie? How do you achieve urgency since everyone is, you know, essentially probably working on a flexible schedule that work, fits with their life? Like, it's good for asynchronous tasks, but when urgent things come up, how do you synchronize that? Yep. This resonated with me quite a bit. And I think, I imagine Level will be a distributed team. I just think, especially when you're small and bootstrapped, like constraining yourself to a geography for finding talent is is tough because it's ex it's expensive is what it winds up being, yeah right it's hard to find good people living in a major city who are willing to work for right. what you can afford yeah i mean we're in we're in minneapolis i'll be here for a little while and there's there is a a moderately sized developer pool not a huge developer pool but then you look at the areas where there is a high concentration of developers and you know you think silicon valley bay area and then I mean, the salary competition, the perks and salary competition is just yep. super intense out there. So I don't even think, you know, trying to bootstrap in Silicon Valley would be insanity too. Yeah. So. And even in Minneapolis where the cost of living <clears throat> is, I would guess, half maybe of mm -hmm. what Silicon Valley is. Maybe, I don't know, a third is probably too extreme. But we have employers here like Target, uh, Best Buy, I don't know, you know, agencies and such who they pay a lot of money. Yeah. The salaries are... The quality of life here is great, you yeah. know, because you can make a lot of money as a developer and, and it's not so much to buy a house, but that makes it even, you know, not even tougher, but it makes it hard, difficult to bootstrap. Right. right. Yeah. And because not... you have to convince someone. I mean, that was always a, uh, you know, we work with Jason Selby, who, who was awesome at, at Drip, and he called it combat pay, mm -hmm. where he said, yeah, because we were, at one point we were trying to hire somebody, at, you know, in a role, and I don't remember what Target was paying him, but it was like, what in the world? Like that is outright. Like there's no chance we can match that. You know, I cannot justify that pay rate. And he said, it's combat pay, man. It's putting up with the politics or putting up, he's probably in a crappy thing and he was going to leave and they kept upping his salary, yeah. you know? And so that's not to throw a target under the bus or anything like that, but just the, the idea yeah. of, you know, a fortune 500 company like that, it's not going to be as fun to work for them as it right. will be to work on level, frankly. Right. But some people don't care about that mm -hmm. or some people don't, you know, can't do it or some mm -hmm. people just don't see that, mm -hmm. you know, they don't realize how cool it is to mm -hmm. work on a, on a little startup, you know, or maybe they really do need the money, which is. Yeah, you know. and it just depends on people's values. And there there is a, you know, a certain percentage of the developer pool that values working on, you know, cool tech and in a smaller bootstrap environment yeah. in exchange for probably less pay than they would get in a more corporate environment. And right. It's just, there are people like that, but it's it's not 100% of them. It's just a subset. When, right. there's, when there is sort of a competitive market with a lot of corporate, uh, yeah. corporate you know, entities around to sort of golden handcuff people a little bit, um, it's just makes it tricky to compete. Yeah, and so. that's, that's why as soon as you limit it to that subset, that's why it's really hard to stay in a locale and, yeah. and to hire local because then it's like you've really cut your talent pool down. Yeah. But if you cut it down that way and then you go, you know, Basically, three time zones either way is mm -hmm. kind of how I like to think about it. That's mm -hmm. where I'd prefer everyone work. Um, then you obviously have a lot, you know, a lot more folks you can work yeah. with. Yeah, and so I'm I'm hoping. Well, level itself will help 
people maintain camaraderie similar to what Slack offers to a lot of companies right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, fully remote teams do a few like retreats a year where they all get together. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's cheaper and more expensive ways to run those. And so mm-hmm. I think that would be something interesting to do once I actually have a team that's distributed. Yeah. Um, seen I, that seem work. I think that's about the best you can do. Yeah. And it's nowhere near working together in the same city. Mm-hmm. But I just think, I think that may be an unsolvable problem Yeah. Uh, in terms of having the cohesion. Because, I mean, you know, their point of, uh, back to Ghost's you know, article, how do you foster camaraderie? How do you ever get to know people outside of work when you never spend time with them outside of work? Right. And that was something that, um, well, with each team that I built, the ones like, you know, back in, in Fresno, when it was five of us in an office, once we went remote, you know, because now Nance is back there mm-hmm. and Angie, we had the history. Mm-hmm. And there's no, like, there's no miscommunication. You know, I still yeah. feel like I know them well. And when I see them, we pick right back up. But we had that, you know, whatever it was, year or two years of, of doing that together. I don't know how you do that, you know, because chat it can get you part of the way, but yeah. it's just, there's just no chance. So yeah. I, that's what I struggle with too. Cause if I were to ever build a company again, yeah, I would probably, probably want it to be remote for exactly the reasons mm-hmm. you said, but mm-hmm. it would, I just would struggle with that relationship piece of it. Yeah. And I think there, we've seen kind of the challenges of having a hybrid, the hybrid model of partially remote, partially in person. Mm-hmm. And like being fully remote does democratize the communication. Like if, if there's communication happening, it's likely to be happening in a forum where like Slack, where everyone can sort of be on a level playing field. And I think it's, it's just difficult. Like a lot of companies try to do it and you make your best effort, but it's just hard when you're in the same office, you're going to have conversations that people remote miss out on. So, yep. Yeah. That's a challenge. Okay. The third point is open source development is largely more broken than ever. Ooh. Which and I know this is something you've uh, you've been very respectfully skeptical of about the whole model of building sure. open source is like what happens when someone you know thinks they're entitled to you know you solving exactly what they want and they you know flame you out on the internet right. for that where they push code that you think is crap because yeah. you have a very high standard of of right. code quality and code yeah. you know, sensibility so yeah so they they said. Uh, you know, this, I'm just going to read this quote directly from the article. Developers regularly show up on GitHub, rage at us for something like not supporting Postgres. And then we say, okay, so you're going to write and maintain Postgres support for Ghost? And they say, of course not. I don't have time for that. And then occasionally they'll go on Twitter and tell all their followers to give us hell. Yep. That's, so I guess it just happens. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is my, I think that's going to happen and it's tough when it does. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. going to be the bummer. I've seen my fair share of this happen, you know, and this, so this experience doesn't surprise me. There's a few ways you can approach open source. One is to say like, this is an open source project and this is a product of the whole community and the community basically shares ownership of it. And so this is the model we're adopting. And then another approach I feel like is it's more of a transparency element than like a, this is shared ownership by the whole community. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. like, I want to build level out in the open so that, People can learn from the code that that we're developing, and so that there are opportunities for people to build, you know, interesting integrations with the code base. But I'm not necessarily approaching it from the perspective of like now I want to outsource all my development to the open source community. Right. That's a careful balance to strike because there are there are certainly people who feel like you know if you are running an open source project, you have an obligation to mm-hmm. to give basically the community shared ownership of this project. And I, I think it doesn't have to be that way, but 
my guess is that a lot of that is setting expectations up front mm -hmm. and you can do some things on GitHub now with like issue templates and pull request templates that when someone tries to submit something, it shows them a blob of text that you write. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you can, maybe I can get out ahead of it a little bit mm -hmm. with that, but I mean, it's, I think it's still always a struggle. And I think it will be because the, you know, the people who hold that opinion strongly, you were saying where it's yeah. like, no, open source means by definition that yeah. everyone owns it and I can do everything with it. Those are going to be the most vocal people. They're, yeah. they're going to tend to be the ones who fist pound and, and jump on Twitter. So there won't be a ton of them. They'll be just enough that they are irritating, yeah. you know, from now and again. But that'll be, I mean, with, you know, with any business you start, man, it's like at one point you, you know, were launching a, a small app uh, that integrated heavily with Twitter. Mm -hmm. And then to it, you know, Twitter killed most of their ecosystem with API. Yeah. Um, I had hit tail and you and I worked on that together and Google kept accidentally stomping on it. Yeah. Uh, we built drip and fricking email blacklist. If I never <laughs> see another one in my entire life, yeah. you know, I never want to send email again. Yeah. You're always going to have something, you know? And, and in this case, I think this may be your something yeah. that eventually like I will, my list is I won't build anything on Twitter ever <laughs> again. I'm not going to build anything Google can kill. I'm mm -hmm. never going to send email again. Mm -hmm. My guess is at some point, you know, <laughs> 10 years down the line, you're not going to work on level. You're going to you know, be done with it. Yeah. And you will probably never do an open source again. Yeah. I bet that will be the, the issue, but it yeah. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right? right. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's all pros and cons. And I, I was listening to Justin Jackson and his business partner on their build your SaaS mm -hmm. podcast talking about specifically the decision to to go transparent with their revenue numbers. And they were sort of running through pros and cons of transparency. I think they hit on a lot of good things. Like, you know, some of the obvious ones are when you do things out in the open and transparent, it's it's a path for your competitors to steal your ideas or just, you know, use that information against you one way or another. The flip side is, you know, you're providing value to a community just by sharing, even sharing numbers sort of just gives other people a case study to to look at and mm -hmm. to model them their, themselves after. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of benefits to promoting Elixir and Elm and GraphQL and the technologies I've chosen for this. And, you know, I would like to have one of the most mature code bases, like a real world example that people can borrow patterns from. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for just giving back to the community. And, and, you know, the side benefit is building trust with that community and, sort of building a brand, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's hard to say like branding is a strategy, but I think that really is critical. I mean, David Cancel talks about it a lot with Drift and, mm -hmm. and I think it doesn't only apply to, to funded startups. I think, no. I mean, brand basically comes down to trust. Oh yeah. And, Big time. And, and with the, the developer community is small and yeah. you're talking about starting with a subset of a subset. It's like people who are interested in these technologies, right? Yeah. And at that point, a brand just means I mean, it's trust, but it's like, when I say Stripe or Square, you know who they are. Yeah. I don't have to say, oh, yeah, it's that payments company that mm -hmm. you can, you know, do the POA. Oh, yeah, yeah. At a certain point in when you went to MicroConf, this it flipped and it was probably 2014 or 2015. People were just like, yeah, so what do you think about Drip? Mm -hmm. No one defined what Drip was. Mm -hmm. They all knew it. That was when I was like, boom, we have a brand with this group. Yeah. Right. And I do think you could brand association can be positive when they trust you or brand association can be negative if you screw them over. Right. Yeah. So, so I don't, to me, it's, it's a recognition within a group of people is how yeah. I think about it. And if you pick a small enough group of people to start with, which is what you're going to do, mm -hmm. and everyone just starts saying level and you don't have to say, well, what's that? What's that? Mm -hmm. You know, slack competitor, the bubble. But mm -hmm. once level becomes just like mm -hmm. a word that everybody uses, yeah. you have a, you know, a small brand. Yeah. 
As you get bigger, Jason Lemkin, who's, who runs Saster, he talks about having a mini brand and he says, you get it between a million, I think he said it was like when you hit a million or one to two million, you get what he calls a mini brand, which is just people start knowing you, even if they have never used you, yep. even if they kind of, it's foggy, it's a different, you know, how how is Drip different than MailChimp? Mm -hmm. But you said Drip in a lot of circles. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I'm even thinking when I was at Saster, people were talking about it. And it's like, I didn't realize everyone, you know, it's, right. they may not have used it. I mean, we weren't that big, but it was like, uh, I mean, we were into some figures, but it wasn't like we're some tremendous thing. You start to get where everybody knows you. So yeah. I think that you have a very real potential to do that. And I think it's um, going to be useful for you in this community. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's one of the most, you know, successful ways to help drive word of mouth. And word of mouth is one of those things like you can't, you can't force it to happen. It just has to happen naturally. But it has, you know, been cited as one of the most, one of the biggest traction channels for a lot of companies. And a lot of times they're just like, I don't know, we just, we just got it somehow. Yep. Slack is one of them. Right? Yeah, Slack is one of the biggest ones. So I think this is, you know, potentially one of the ways to help foster that is, yeah. is through building a brand and trust. I would agree. Yeah. So I have one other topic before we wrap. Yeah. And it was something I realized as as I've been kind of unemployed or self-employed, as I'm now mm -hmm. saying. But <laughs> it's that I'm I'm working really short days right now because my I'm homeschooling my son in the afternoons just through the end of the school year um, for reasons that aren't aren't that important. But I basically work from nine to noon right now. I have mm -hmm. a three-hour workday, and I'm finding that I am ridiculously productive mm, during that time. And I don't have to, f typically I fight for motivation at times during the day and I'm like, yeah. I got to caffeine up. I got to get the music playing loud or whatever. None of that is happening. Yeah. And I know specifically bootstrap startup founders and who, who work, you know, four to six hour days. Yeah. And I think there's real, like, <laughs> I, I'm starting to become a believer, you know, yeah. T traditionally we have worked, I was trying to think, and even as we were building drip, I think we worked about seven hour days. Is that mm -hmm. what you think? I think so. I mean, I would, I would like to get in, you know, when we were coming into our Fresno office, I, I wasn't like waking up super early. I was more following my body clock. So I would get yeah. in around eight thirty or nine and I was generally trying to beat traffic. I don't, no one wants to drive in traffic. So yeah. I would take off around three thirty or four. Yep. And maybe do a little bit in the evening if it needed right. it, you know. Right. But and, and we would typically, if we were there, we'd typically eat lunch together. Yeah. So, you know, there was a break. When I'm at home, I don't, don't tend to do that. So, I'm real, I mean, even, even, and, and before drip, I would tend to, my work hours tended to be, I'll say f between five and seven mm -hmm. a day. I just have never felt like eight mm -hmm. hours is that productive for me. Yeah. So, but I, aside from, you know, if you have a bunch of email and you it just takes you three hours to get through it, that sucks. And I have been there, but I'm not there right now. Yeah. So, I'm finding that like, I don't, even once I'm not homeschooling them, I don't know that I want to go even go back to six. Yeah. I may try to do four or five. Now, one thing I'm doing, you know, I'm doing a lot of writing these days and you really can't do that for six hours. Like mm -hmm. no, even professional writers like mm -hmm. Stephen King or whatever, they do it in these two or three hour bursts because you just, you just don't have any more. Yeah. Code is different. Yeah. And that's the one thing that if I was coding, I used to be able to do long, I, I would do seven or eight hour days and then I would do three or four hours at night. I would be tired, but it's what I needed to do to bootstrap, right? Yeah. You have the luxury, of course, not needing to do that, but mm -hmm. I, I could see, I do think you can be pretty productive for a long period of time because there's not necessarily the same, there's creativity, but sometimes there's not, right? Yeah. And well, and I think what it actually is, because um, I think you're right, there are times when, when, you know, I can just start going and look up and it's like, oh, it's 
4.45 and I've been basically sitting here since I ate lunch, you know, that does happen sometimes. But I found, especially at early stages of a building product like I'm doing right now, when um, a lot there's still a lot of unknowns, I'm spending a lot more mental energy and I'm sometimes I'll only write like one small feature, a couple hundred lines of code that day. And I've been trying to convince myself that like, no, I actually got, I'll find myself saying like, oh, I didn't get much done today. Yeah. But no, I did. I'm just like thinking through these hard problems. And once the path gets clearer and you have more of a foundation, then I feel like if you're just mostly implementing something that you've already decided on. Yep. Then that's the difference. Then you can just be running because we just all enjoy, you know, it's like playing Legos, just snapping together code. That totally, yeah. The snap together phase is where uh, you. I used to be. I won't speak for everyone, but like I used to be able to do that for hours and hours and hours on end. And you're right. The whether it's the architecture or the the big problem that you like. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's gonna be. I need to whiteboard this. Mm -hmm. That stuff just takes your good glucose, man. And there's only so much you have in a day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and I think I mean I just I continue to see podcasts and articles about. You know, the fact that like the eight hour day forcing that is just not, Mm -hmm. you you know, you're likely having a few hours in there where you're operating at 10% or 5%. And it's, I know that 37 signals during the summer, or I've heard during the summer, since the winters in Chicago suck so much, um, they do four day work weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, I guess that's so people can go away on weekends or something, but I would much prefer. Because that's what, 32 hours in essence? I would much rather prefer, you know, six and a quarter hour work days, which yeah. I think, you know, five of them personally, yeah. I'd rather just have the shorter work days and, and work every day. But I, you know, that's neither here nor there. I, yeah. I'm sure they have a reason for doing it. But I was mm-hmm. kind of thinking, I wonder, maybe that's, if I were to ever do this again, mm-hmm. you know, would I, would I try to do it with that and have that yeah. just be the thing that we have six hour work days? I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. just a dreamer. I think that's one of those things that I would love to just do differently. You yeah. know, I think yeah. bucking like traditional, you know, wisdom that nope, got to be at least 40 hours. I just don't, yeah. I don't buy into that. So yeah. And it's fun being, you know, running your own company. That's one of the things you can experiment with. I know. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. Cool. Cool, man. Looking forward to the journey, man. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it. Indeed. All right. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you bet. You can find the show notes for this episode at artofproductpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. Peace out.